Are you tired, frustrated, and feel stuck? Are you a high-performing business professional, entrepreneur, and you are not getting the results you desire or you hit a ceiling? Have you been around the block and tried many modalities? You are in the right place. The answer, my friend, is in the little-known brain-soul connection. Welcome to the Brain Soul Success Show, where we learn, explore, and create your dream life. Your host, Louise Schwartzwalter, created a five-part mind-body-soul methodology that clears the subconscious blocks to success. You are a soul with a body, not a body with a soul. The seed of all you need is already within you. From engaging transformational interviews, brain-soul success stories, and secrets shared by health, wellness, and spiritual experts, you will reconnect, revitalize, and transform your powerful life. It's time for you. Welcome back, everyone, to the Brain Soul Success Show. Wow, you are in for a treat today. I'm so excited to be here with my guest, Cynthia Thurlow. She's a nurse practitioner. She's a CEO. She's the founder of the Everyday Wellness Project. She's an international speaker. Gosh, your TED Talk had 9.6 million views. And you are such an awesome speaker and presenter. So as an entrepreneur, I can see that you have totally like taken this and succeeded on such a high level. Um, 20 years of experience in health and wellness. She's globally recognized for her intermittent fasting and nutritional health expertise. You've been featured on ABC, on Fox 5, on KTLA, CW, Medium, The Entrepreneur, and The Megyn Kelly Show. You were listed in the Yahoo Finance as one of the the 21 founders changing the way we do business. Wow, I want to pick your brain about that too. (laughs) That's pretty cool. (laughs) And, uh, And you host that Everyday Wellness Podcast. And it's one of 21 podcasts to expand your mind in 2021 um, by Business Insider. So I know that your mission here is to educate more women on the benefits of intermittent fasting. You have a book coming out, Intermittent Fasting Transformation. We can see the cover of the book right behind Cindy there if you're watching this on YouTube. Um, And you're just really good at helping empower women. So thank you for the work you do. Thank you so much. It was a wonderful, lovely introduction. I've been looking to connect, looking forward to connecting with you. Yeah, this is really, really beautiful. You know, so, you know, I guess the first question is, you know, how did you get started in all of this? How did you even <laughs> want to become a nurse practitioner and, and do all this work? Well, you know, many years ago, I was pre-law, uh, got into law school and decided not to go and, you know, started working for a Fortune 500 company, which I absolutely positively hated, but I had to support myself. And a strange story is that I got a dog and it completely changed the trajectory of everything that I did. I thought about going to medical school and in fact, took two years of pre-med classes. And one of my professors walked up to me and said, what in the world are you doing here? And so I explained what I was thinking about doing. And he said, don't become a physician, become a nurse practitioner. And then he explained to me, his sister was a nurse practitioner. It's the best of all worlds. And you have to remember back then there weren't as many nurse practitioners as there were now. And that did, in fact, change the path in which I was headed. And I'm so glad that I had this professor who was so interested in what I was interested in learning about. And so 
At the time, I worked uh, in an HIV and AIDS clinic in Washington, D.C., and, and so I chose a university where I could continue that focus. And so the options at that time was really Johns Hopkins or University of uh, San Francisco, University of California, San Francisco. Being an East Coast gal, it was an easy decision to go to Hopkins. And so initially, I thought I would be an MP specializing in HIV and AIDS. And this is really at the time uh, when in the 1990s, when there wasn't a cure for, for HIV or AIDS, there was just palliative care. And the population, as you can well imagine, in Washington, D.C. was very different than Baltimore. I had so many patients that were my own age and were dying. It was really just profoundly sad. There are so many social issues in Baltimore. And so I think emotionally to deal with what I saw as a student, I started to pivot and so I ultimately, when I finished my first bachelor's, my second bachelor's degree, but my first degree at Hopkins, uh, I became an ER nurse and I'm a total adrenaline junkie. And I love the pace. I loved the strangest, sickest, traumatizing injuries. I loved, I still love helping people. And then it was a natural trajectory to kind of pivot and become uh, an MP in cardiology. I love everything about the heart. Again, adrenaline junkie, sick patients, very clinically complex patients. Mm-hmm. And I think after I became a parent and I had a child with life-threatening food allergies, that really changed a lot for me. I started to look very differently at food, Um, you know, certainly being a clinician and talking to the allergist, the allergist advice to me was carry an EpiPen and pray. And as a parent, that was really kind of a, I remember there were definitely a few years where I was fearful to take them to a restaurant or take them to someone else's house because of the concerns about cross-contamination or him, um, unfortunately, you know, getting, coming in contact with one of the allergens that he uh, reacted so significantly to. And so that started this pivoting. I, I was still practicing. My husband, you know, did a lot of international travel. We had a second child. And then I started to kind of think a little bit more deeply about the nutrition piece. And I read a book called The Unhealthy Truth by Robin O'Brien, which completely changed everything for me. It really got me thinking that staying in a traditional allopathic model was probably not what I would be doing. So I started a PhD program, which I hated. Then I did a wellness coaching program, which I was kind of like, okay, this is meh, not a big deal. And then I read another book called Eat the Yolks. And I reached out to the author and said, where did you get your training? Everything you're saying really resonates. And so then I did a functional nutrition program and that really lit me up. And that was the indicator that this was the path I was meant to be on. And so I woke up one morning in 2016 and told my husband I could not write another prescription that I needed to leave uh, my clinical position. You know, I worked in the hospital and the, the clinic and my cardiology group did everything they could do to appease me. You know, they, I already had a great schedule. They tried to make it even better. And I kept saying, this is not about you all. This is about me. I'm just not challenged in a way that I need to be anymore. And so I literally, without a business plan, leaped and became an entrepreneur And it was one of the best decisions I could have ever made because I had no idea at the time how incredibly creative I am and how the universe kind of brings to you exactly what you need when you need it. And almost instantaneously, I started attracting a certain kind of patient, Mm -hmm. uh, patients who felt much like I did, that there there was something missing in our medical care. And certainly uh, in perimenopause, there was a lot lacking in the care that I was receiving, even as a clinician, even with all the knowledge I had, even with all the resources I had. And so that really began this path of 
working autonomously for myself, you know, the state that I, I reside in, we can function as MPs autonomously. And so for me, I, I don't write prescriptions anymore. I still order labs, review labs, and work concurrently with a lot of other colleagues. I always say I play well with others, but I would much rather talk about food. I would much rather talk about lifestyle medicine. That's what lights me up. That's actually what gets me excited. And the you know side effect of that is it allows my patients to learn how to be self-sufficient in many ways. Like I always say the, I, I do have women that have worked with me for the entire time I've had my, my practice, but my goal is for people to be able to go out on their own and, you know, touch base with me episodically, but not need me in the right. way that they needed me before, because I really want them to be inspired, empowered, and educated to live their best lives. And that really encompasses quite a bit of things, but I, I'm really proud of the work that I'm doing and, and certainly feel like I'm making a much larger impact than I was when I worked in that cardiology group. Wow. You've had quite a background. You know, I love, I just love the stories about people who have started out in the medical world, have mm-hmm. succeeded, have done really, really well. You're really smart, you know, and you've taken that knowledge and you kept having this sort of a, it was sort of a, a a burning soul desire to do something more or something else. It sounded like it started a little bit with your son mm-hmm. with the food allergies and that got you interested, you said, in food. Yeah. And I think yeah. when you have a child that has, and he still has food allergies, you know, only 30% mm-hmm. of children will outgrow their allergies, but we've now gotten very comfortable living with his food allergies and he's incredibly responsible. He's now 16 years old. Mm-hmm. But I think back to how hopeless I felt at that time and how scared I was about exposing him. I mean, this is, you have to remember 16, 17 years ago, there weren't the resources there are now. Right. I think there were a lot of parents who felt like I did. I mean, I went to making all of his own food from scratch. I mean, mm-hmm. I did everything because mm-hmm. I wanted to protect him. And now I feel like, you know, the world has gotten bigger and I think food allergies are, are so much more common, which is unfortunate, but we're now in an environment where people are a little more sensitized to the needs of others when it comes to, you know, foods, it's not so strange to walk into a restaurant and ask for, as an example, gluten-free or dairy-free. They don't look at you like you have two heads. Right. Um, but now, yeah, now it's much more common and so much more socially accepted. Yeah, it sure is. You know, I went down that path too. So I was allergic to everything in the world, but my daughter at age three had a ton of food allergies. So she had a very similar body to her mom you know, and so we were in this whole, you know, path of learning about all of that as well. And I remember taking her off all those foods too. And I lived in the kitchen, Um, but it was 30 years ago and there was no gluten-free cookbooks. Then I could have written five of them, (laughs) you know, so I really just started playing in the kitchen and the very first food allergy newsletter came on yellow paper, just paper like this. Um, like six pages in an envelope. That was the first gluten-free anything for recipes way back then. So I, I, you know, I totally understand what you're saying. And, and yeah, you know, and we don't have to have all of those food allergies. We just have to work with them mm-hmm. and then also detox the body. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know? and, and it's interesting now that my son is 16 years old He's not as open-minded as he was when he was younger. And so it, it kind of evolves. Like, obviously he abstains from the things he's allergic to, but he doesn't like being constrained as a teenager about 
being dairy or gluten-free, although he was for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so I'm now officially the only person in my house who's gluten and dairy-free, which I'm fine with. But I always remind him that at least he knows he can go back to using those strategies if he needs to, which of course he, you know, he wants to eat and do the things that his peers do. And so we have to kind of agree to disagree on some things. And the one thing that I I would say to anyone, if you have children that are younger and yes, when they're under the age of 10, you have a lot more control over what they eat and how they eat. And then, you know, you have to start letting go of some control because otherwise I mean, I would be a neurotic mess. And so I always say, you know, some of this, you're, you're old enough now that you make choices and some choices have consequences. And so if your eczema flares, then I'm going to, you know, be thinking about what is in your diet. And so we, we kind of go back and forth about, you know, excluding some things, you know, minimizing some things, but you know, at this point, he's going to be off in college in a few more years. And so uh, trying to do as, as best I can of a job educating him about the interrelationship between gut health and the foods he chooses to eat and stress management and sleep and all those things that we know are so, so important. Mm-hmm. Well, you're teaching him and he'll come back. You know, mm-hmm. so my kids are in the 30s. Same thing happened. Teenager, college years kind of went astray. You know, got great stories on that. Mm-hmm. And then they came back, you know, so my daughter's gluten-free, pretty much dairy-free. My son doesn't have the allergies she has. So they ca- they came back. So they will. And it sounds like you have a great, great attitude about that. And you're working with it so beautifully. Um, and this is a tip for all of our parents listening here too, you know? So, you know, Cynthia is finding a way to work with this in a beautiful way. So what great, what great advice, you know? I also know we want to talk a little bit about, about women too, because you work a lot with women's hormones. You work a lot with um, not just the cardiology stuff you did in the cardiology unit, unit, but also what, you know, with, with, with blood glucose levels and all of that, you know, how does, um, how does our food play into keeping our blood sugar balanced and how that affects the brain? Yeah, that's a a great question. Uh, I would say first and foremost, so when we're talking about metabolic flexibility, which is really the Mm -hmm. platform that I stand on, we're really talking about nourishing our body with real foods. We're talking about finding hormonal balance between blood sugar and insulin and having appropriate communication between satiety hormones like leptin and ghrelin. And one of the ways that we can really capitalize on that is the nutritional choices that we make. And women north of 40, as much as you don't want to hear this, a lot of foods that we think of as being very benign are really not. So I think about inflammatory foods. I think about gluten and grains and dairy as examples, processed sugars and alcohol, soy. Those are the big ones. But I remind women that we want to eat for satiety. That's certainly very important. And the way that we do that is really focused on Protein first, protein is the most satiating macronutrient. So macronutrients are protein, fat, and carbohydrates, non-starchy vegetables. So really, you know, loading your, your, your plate up or your salad up with brightly pigmented vegetables that are non-starchy, healthy fats. If that healthy fats are part of the meat or the, the fish that you're eating as an example, like salmon or a ribeye, you don't need to add more fats. And so the first step of really understanding how to control blood sugar is understanding what macronutrients do for you. And so obviously protein first. The second thing is not eating too frequently because we as a, as a society eat way too frequently and we eat the wrong foods too frequently. And what ends up happening is if we're carbohydrate focused, I'm not anti-carbs, 
But the more metabolically flexible you are, the more carbohydrates your body can handle. However, here's the caveat. We know as women in perimenopause, the five to 10 years preceding menopause, we are more prone to insulin resistance. And that has a lot to do with buffering levels of estradiol, which is the predominant form of estrogen in our bodies prior to going through menopause. So I think it's really important for women to understand that your carbohydrate threshold at 35 may be very different than 50. And I find most women, even the ones who are metabolically flexible, like I am, I can't just eat any old carbohydrate. And I certainly can't be mindful of my portion. So if I choose to have carbs, it's going to be a third of a cup of sweet potato or some root vegetables or some squash. It's not going to be a bunch of processed pasta and bread because anything that's been milled into a flour, like you would find in pasta or bread, it's almost like mainstreaming or mainlining uh, cocaine into your bloodstream. It's so readily absorbed with very little fiber that it's going to have a profound net impact on your blood sugar. Whereas if you have something with fiber in it, whether that's non-starchy vegetables, whether that is some squash or sweet potato as examples, there's fiber to slow down the absorption of that carbohydrate. And it's interesting mm-hmm. that when I'm thinking about blood sugar and thinking about educating women on this, one thing that's really important is for people to understand that there are other variables that impact blood sugar, not just the frequency with which we eat, but also stress, sleep quality, um, you know, those hormones that we kind of touched on and talked about our activity levels. So again, when women are, are kind of making this transition from perimenopause into menopause, um, it can be a, a bumpy road if someone is used to running 10 miles a day and, and that, that drain on our bodies of chronic cardio, chronic debilitating cardio is very different than strength training is very different mm-hmm. than high intensity interval training or Tabata training is very different than yoga or Tai Chi. Mm-hmm. And so the way that we feed ourselves, the way we interact with our environment, the way we exercise in middle age is absolutely critical. So when we're talking about blood sugar, we're really speaking to lifestyle. And I find for a lot of people, they are so fervently attached to the antiquated dogma that they grew up with. You know, you have to eat to stoke your metabolism. You have to eat breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And I would argue that dogmatic principles like that have really derailed our health along with things like bastardizing fats and convincing people they need to eat heart healthy grains Um, I think that has been hugely problematic because when you take fat out of something, what do you add? You add sugar. Think about low fat or non-fat cheese or or Mm -hmm. yogurt, or I think about snack wells. I'm really going to date myself, but when I was in college, snack wells were all the rage. They were horrible. They were, you know, cookies and crackers that had no fat in them. So what happens? You eat a lot of them because you're never satiated and they don't taste very good. And you end up really overloading on carbohydrates. So I think that there's a multi-pronged approach when it comes to metabolic health and really understanding insulin signaling in the body, understanding that when you eat, your blood sugar will go up in response to what you ate, more negligible negligible amounts of blood sugar response with fat, but certainly more exaggerated with protein and then, and then even more with carbohydrates. So really teaching women, empowering them to understand how to eat, when to eat, And then the lifestyle piece can all be hugely impactful because I think a lot of women don't understand. Um, And I'll give you a good example. I wear a continuous glucose monitor. And obviously with the book launch, I've been doing a lot of press and media. And it's interesting to me that every time I, I do a podcast or a media event, 
my blood sugar goes up, but that's a cortisol thing. That's in response to this isn't stressful to me, but my body acknowledges it's like, we got to have all hands on deck. We need to be fully engaged in what we're doing. My blood sugar will go up in response to that. So even, you know, benign stressors can raise our blood sugar in response to cortisol going up. So there's a lot of interplay. There's a lot of interconnection between these hormones and that has a net impact on, again, blood sugar control. Of course. Wow. That was really a good explanation. Yeah. And for, for our audience that doesn't understand cortisol, can you explain that? Mm-hmm. So it's a hormone. It's not a bad hormone. I always say insulin is not a bad hormone. Cortisol is not a bad hormone, but it's a hormone that's secreted by the adrenal glands in response to stress. You know, we have two sides of the autonomic nervous system. We have the sympathetic and the parasympathetic and sympathetic is where most of us are stuck. The fight or flight, the I'm being chased by a rabid animal, but our bodies don't differentiate that from the day-to-day stress of you're late to pick up your kid. You woke up late. You're stressed because your boss yelled at you. Your kid's yelling at you because they want dinner. Whatever the stress is, our body doesn't differentiate. Whereas the parasympathetic, the rest and repose, relaxed side of our body. And so cortisol is secreted optimally in response to stress. And what should happen is we get a bump in cortisol, like I just described, I can can literally monitor it on my continuous glucose monitor. And in response to that, we get insulin will will increase in response to that because we're trying to shunt blood to the muscles. We're getting ready to fight. We've got to do something. But over time, cortisol can, it can weaken us if it is elevated for too long. And so I always use the example, too much of any one thing is not good. And so over time, it can impact the gut microbiome. It can impact immune function. It can impact detoxification in the body because detoxification is really down the parasympathetic autonomic side. It can impact our ability to concentrate. Think about anytime when you're really stressed, your amygdala, the part in your brain, that's the primitive brain will override the prefrontal cortex and you literally can't think straight. And that is a byproduct of your brain putting you into survival mode. Um, I remind people this, people are chronically stressed. They can't defecate. They can't have a bowel movement, which is a really interesting kind of segue into talking about what happens to digestion. If you're stressed, you cannot digest your food. And so the downstream effect, and you, and you're not going to procreate, it's going to impact your menstrual cycle. You're still getting cycles. It's going to impact your sex hormones. You're not going to have a libido because your body's under stress. And so too much of any one thing is not good. So cortisol in the short term is great. Cortisol chronically over time can be very debilitating. And if it goes on on long enough, unfettered, not properly balanced, you'll ultimately end up overtaxing those adrenal glands. And you can have low cortisol levels, which is when people feel like they can barely get out of bed, they can barely function, they really struggle to be able to get through their days. And so I think it's important for people to understand that cortisol is not a bad hormone, much like insulin. Sure. You know, I wish I would have known all that way back when, of course we say that, right. You know, so I crashed too with adrenal fatigue, chronic fatigue, you know, fibromyalgia, they didn't know what I had. <laughs> they gave me all the labels, but really well, looking I think back, I had such, my cortisol was just tanked. It was, yeah. Awful, and and it's so common for women in perimenopause and menopause to have this happen. I mean, I mm-hmm. myself even, you know, I've been down a rabbit hole dealing with thyroid issues. You know, I had a change in medication that turned into four new medications that still weren't working. And finally, my new integrated medicine person said, I actually don't think this is a thyroid problem. I think this is an adrenal problem. I think your Mm -hmm. adrenals are just toast. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so it finally made sense. I was like, that makes sense. But I agree for many women, they're told you have fibromyalgia to me is a bucket term that generally, at least in my clinical experience, almost always represents someone who has an underlying tick-borne illness that has not been diagnosed yes. in, in almost every instance, which is really mm-hmm. unfortunate because people may go years not being diagnosed properly with chronic Lyme or babesia mm-hmm. or any of these tick-borne illnesses. And then adrenal fatigue really isn't an adrenal issue. It's a brain issue. It's, you know, you can actually get depletion and impact chronically on the hippocampus. So kind of the, you know, mindful thought process part of the brain, but also the hypothalamus pituitary axis, which is a big fancy way for talking about the control center for what goes on in in terms of signaling to, to glands and parts of the body where we have hormones that are secreted. And if that gets overtaxed, it's really a brain issue. And so I, I think that I, I learned the term uh, adrenal fatigue years ago, but the more research I do, the more I really believe it's a function of brain stress that impacts our entire endocrine system that unfortunately gets focused on the adrenal glands when it's, it's a much larger issue than that. Oh, I love that you brought that up. Thank you so much, Cynthia, because I, I look back on my whole story too, and the people I've worked with over the 20 years now, and I often do see, you know, Lyme, pathogens, parasites, stuff like that, that is buried in there. And you're right. It affects the brain. I mean, I became the brain expert because my quest was to get my brain power back. Mm-hmm. You know, I was in my thirties when I crashed, you know? And so when I look back, yes, did I have all these things happening at the same time? We're whole people. So when you speak about lifestyle, it is about lifestyle. It's not just about mm-hmm. what we eat, but it's how we sleep. It's our exercise routine. Everyone has a different one. You know, we have to honor our own metabolisms and learn how to work with them. Yeah, and you have that background and that's just beautiful. And, you know, I want to know a little bit more about fasting too, because mm-hmm. recently I have a whole lot of women here who are saying, you know what, I've got to lose 20 pounds. I've got to lose 25 pounds. I've tried this diet, this diet, this diet, nothing's worked, mm-hmm. you know, and they are, they're perimenopause or they're in menopause. Um, so we know it's hormonal and we know that's a piece of it. Um, but I think you've touched upon something here and I cannot wait till this book comes out, you guys, because I know it's going to be fabulous uh, on, on really what it means to fast and to do it properly. Mm-hmm. One of my teachers said years ago, she said, fasting is like a sword. You have to know when to use it. I would absolutely agree with that. And, and I think one of the, the common problems that I see is that women come to intermittent fasting with the expectation that this is going to be the thing that is going to make them allow them to lose weight. Mm -hmm. And I tell women all the time for some women. Yes. I mean, I I have a woman right now who's 58 years old, who's Mm -hmm. had 20 pounds of menopausal weight gain that she's never been able to get rid of. And just with fasting, she's lost it. So she is very happy, but more often than not, it is so much more complicated. Weight loss resistance is far more than calories in calories out, which I don't believe in. Um, it, it, there's so many components to weight loss resistance. And I think we really do ourselves a disservice because we get very fixated on the number on the scale instead of thinking about what factors make us as metabolically flexible as possible, because most of us aren't, you know, there was a UNC Chapel Hill study from 2018 and, and certainly over the last two years, uh, it has not done us any favors on many levels. 88.2% of Americans are not metabolically healthy. And I would argue that's probably pushing 90% or more now at this point. And so when we really think about that, 
we really have to understand that it is not just about eating less often. It is far more than that. It is really adjusting our lifestyle for the rest of our lives. It is not a quick fix. It is not a potion pillar powder. And that's what we've been conditioning. The weight loss industry has really conditioned consumers to believing that there's the thing that is going to help them lose weight. And, and this is when I step in and say, listen, I want people to feel empowered to be able to make good decisions for themselves, whether it's the foods you choose to eat, how frequently you eat, what your sleep strategy is like. And for anyone out there, sleep in perimenopause and menopause becomes an art form. You can ask my husband. I mean, I'm always tinkering and try, I'm always hacking, trying to find like, what's the next thing that I can share with someone. Um, I think it's really, really important for women to understand that it is not just counting calories. It is not just going to orange theory fitness or CrossFit and killing yourself five days a week and thinking your body is suddenly going to go, okay, I'm ready to lose weight. That's not the way it works. And you've touched on some of the other contributors. It can be, um, you know, is your liver not able to properly detoxify? Are you recirculating estrogen? Are you full of parasites? Um, I'll, for full transparency, I do a lot of international travel a lot. And so um, on, my, on my third trip to Africa, when I came back, I was like, something is not right. And so sure enough, I had two parasites for my travel. And it's interesting to me that since being treated, all of a sudden I'm like, gosh, I feel so much better. I didn't realize because over time we start to kind of discount, you know, whatever experience we're having. We're like a little bit of digestive changes. Okay. That's not a big deal. And now I say to my husband, I'm, I'm amazed. Like, I'm just so grateful that, you know, we have all this diagnostic criteria and, and testing that we can do, um, but really digging deep, looking at underlying food sensitivities, looking at gut health, um, you know, really being honest and transparent about what else could be going on below the hood beyond the obvious. And sometimes that even, that even means that you have to leave kind of the traditional allopathic medicine model to dig a little bit deeper because unfortunately, and this is something that's a, a huge uh, pain point for me is that functional and integrative approaches should be available to everyone. It shouldn't just be available to people that can afford it. It should be available to everyone because I think together, if you take allopathic and, and kind of functional integrative medicine together, it's the best of both worlds, but we're still very much in these opposing mindsets of root cause medicine versus symptom management and because of that, there are a lot of people who are missing opportunities to really, you know, gain back their health. Absolutely. And I see more and more people coming, you know, coming to coming to me for that, for that reason. They're saying, hey, the allopathic stuff is not working. I need to do something different. I've tried this, 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 and this, right? You know, when you talk about meta metabolic flexibility, you touched on this a lot, but get, can you give us a list? You know, so when you think about how can we how can we achieve that metabolic? I feel I feel like I have, but it's taken me 16 years and over time, and my my diet's changed over time too. I'm older now. Um, I'm really aware of my body. I use a lot of neurobiofeedback to balance things. I'm balancing the vagus nerve all the time. You know, mm -hmm. I'm a super good self care person. You know, um, my exercise is suffering a little bit right now. That's not happening as much as I'd like, but everything else is pretty darn good. You know. But how does someone even discover how they can create that metabolic flexibility? What would well, be the I mean, steps? I, yeah, I mean, I think it really starts with, uh, you know, nutrition. I mean, first and foremost, okay. you know, what do you eat? What quality of food do you eat? Um, how do you put your macros together? How frequently do you eat? You know, I tell everyone, no one should be snacking. 
If you're north of like 15 years old, no one should be snacking because snacking, if you're hungry in between meals, it's because you didn't put your meals together properly. So that's problem number one. Awesome. Um, problem number two is getting uh, really getting honest with yourself about what foods no longer serve you. And, and for the bulk of, a, of, you know, Americans diets, it's very processed. Mm-hmm. It's very hyper palatable. So the food's designed to be addictive. It's designed to trick your brain into thinking you're not full so that you eat more of it. Mm-hmm. And so eating less processed foods is certainly part of it. And then, you know, in terms of what else you put in your body, it has to be based on what works for you and your budget. Because I, I, I have a, a mother of teen boys. And so our grocery bills, I was saying to my husband, can you imagine what it's going to be like when they go off to college? We're not going to know what to do with ourselves, all this extra money, which will be going towards college tuition. But um, <laughs> the amount of money we spend on protein every week is just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. But um, along with that comes high quality sleep. And when I talk high quality sleep, it's seven to eight hours a night of sleep. If not, if not a little bit more, I wear an aura ring so I can track my sleep data. So I know how much deep sleep and REM sleep I get. And we need enough in order to evoke something called the glymphatic system in our brain, which allows us to, um, you know, it's like taking out the trash in the brain, but it requires mm-hmm. so much energy The only time that we can really take advantage of this process is while we're asleep. So sleep, stress management, and it's not just, you know, I say to people all the time, oh, I just do this app on my phone for meditation. No, it's far more than that. It's connecting with nature. It's, um, you know, making sure that you are winding down, really tapping into that parasympathetic. I mean, I wear an Apollo Neuro um, throughout the day, which it's not realistic for me to meditate throughout the day, but the Apollo Neuro is a way to kind of tap back into that parasympathetic really doing things that bring you joy, saying no more often. I think women as a, as a rule are people pleasers. One of the biggest things I did for myself in my forties was to stop saying yes to everything and to stop pleasing people because it was ultimately hurting me. And I want to be able to give to my family and to who I serve. And I don't want to be distracted by things that are not serving my higher purpose I think the other thing about metabolic flexibility is doing the right kinds of exercise. And so strength training is absolutely critical. There is no woman north of 35 years old that should not be, not be lifting. And it could be body weight exercises, but muscle is the organ of longevity. That means the more muscle mass you have, the more glucose reservoirs you have, the more metabolically flexible you are. The sad thing is, is that we hit peak bone and muscle mass in our 20s and 30s. And around 40, we start developing something called sarcopenia. This is not if, but when it will happen. It's muscle loss with aging. And so this, you know, muscle loss with aging, you start replacing muscle with fat. Fat is its own endocrine organ. It is a very sophisticated organ. And so I remind people that the more body fat you have, the more signaling you have for inflammatory markers, the more oxidative stress, the more signaling issues you have between hormones so maintaining muscle mass is critical. And that is, that's a three-pronged approach. That's strength training. That's eating adequate protein to get enough muscle protein synthesis. And it also means high quality sleep. And I would say, if you're really following along with those things, when it comes to fasting, how fasting can help you become more metabolically flexible is that when you are not eating, you've suppressed insulin. Insulin is, as I mentioned, not a bad hormone, but we want insulin to be low in between our meals because when insulin is low and we're metabolically flexible, our body can go in and break down special types of ketones or fats. Uh, one in particular called beta hydroxybutyrate will diffuse across the blood brain barrier. 
And so this is one of the benefits of intermittent fasting is you get tremendous mental clarity. It's also really important for brain function. And I'm going to dovetail the conversation about female sex hormones in here. So we know north of, you know, late thirties, early forties, you're producing less progesterone. Our ovaries are as old as we are. We are not ovulating every month, even if we're having a menstrual cycle. And so this loss of progesterone creates this imbalance between estradiol and progesterone. So you may have trouble sleeping. You may be more anxious and depressed. You may have heavier periods. You may have um, gained weight. You may um, just have more tender breasts. There's all sorts of you know unpleasant side effects when you have this seesaw imbalance between these hormones. And so I like women to understand that insulin is a sensitizing hormone along with estrogen. So if we don't have enough estrogen hanging around, we're more likely to be insulin resistant. And that's why it's so, so important. Excuse me, I have hiccups. That's why it's so, so important that we are balancing our sex hormones, that we are balancing insulin and glucose, that we are balancing our satiety hormones, that we are really leaning into the self-care piece. As you mentioned, a lot of us don't do a very good job with it. And yet that is the way, like I say all the time, sleep has become an art form. I'm very, very focused on my sleep. I think about sleep when I get up in the morning. That's why I get light exposure bursting in the morning so that my body and my inside my retina will suppress melatonin and increase cortisol Tell my body it's time to get moving. It's time to get going. It's time to get up all super important, but metabolic flexibility has multiple factors, but those are ways that you can help improve. Uh, your metabolic flexibility, but that's really what we desire and want, especially with age. It is much easier when we're younger. It gets a little bit more challenging as we get older, but certainly not impossible. That's such a great explanation. You touched on every single little piece that needs to be taken care of there. You know, and I see that clinically too. I always see women over the age of 50 needing progesterone usually, or it's out of balance usually. And then just a little bit of that changes everything from anxiety to their mood to, um, to that the libido even, and the whole hormones, just the whole balance comes back into play there. It's cool. Yeah. It's and I think really progesterone is a, a hormone that we don't talk enough about. So progesterone is mm-hmm. really critical for a neurotransmitter called GABA, which is this calming neurotransmitter. And if we don't have enough progesterone, we have progesterone and estradiol and testosterone signaling in the brain. And there's a great book called the XX brain that I recommend called by Dr. Lisa Moscone. She's a brain researcher based out of Cornell. And I tell people all the time, when I read that book, it suddenly made so much sense. You know, I trained in the early two thousands. And so this is the time of the women's health initiative and women were told, you know, hormone replacement therapy is terrible. And so unfortunately that narrative, despite it being based on really bad research has persisted. And I think many women are very confused about bioidenticals, hormone replacement therapy. And I'm a huge proponent of women getting educated to find out what would work best for them. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Progesterone is pretty benign. A lot of people take it just to sleep because it has some sedating properties. I know that I take oral progesterone at night and I always jokingly say I have to be ready to fall asleep because it works that effectively in me. Um, but it, it's interesting how there are still people out there that are very, uh, very scared to prescribe as well as recommend hormones. And mm-hmm. so I, I think it's really important that all of us get the right information so that we can make the best decision for ourselves and our health. Absolutely. And you know what, Cynthia's talking, I want to speak to our audience here. 
you know, about is so important. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of Joanne. Joanne was a nurse practitioner working in my office for years. Um, and she had been in business for 30 years and did do a lot of that hormone testing that we're talking about. And Joanne's a skier. She drives cars. She's a fast car racer. <laughs> She's amazing. <laughs> but she, um, she was, you know, just finally retired at 76. Wow. At 76, she looks like she's 46 and she has an active life because her hormones are balanced and she has metabolic flexibility, everything yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. funny. My, my integrative medicine person, this is, this is what he, and so I, I can't take credit for this, but it, it's a little crass, but it keeps things very clear. Your hormones are in balance when you're happy, horny, and hungry. And so when he said that to me, I was like, I have to give you credit because I didn't come up with that, but it's the truth. You know, it is not normal to have no libido. It is not normal to not be hungry. It is not normal to not be happy. Right. And so it shows that something is off. Although I do, I do still like, I'm still down the rabbit hole trying to figure out why it is that women in their early forties oftentimes will, it's sometimes easier for them to fast because they're not quite as hungry as they once were. So I do think there's an interrelationship with that loss of muscle mass, your basal metabolic kind of sets itself mm -hmm. again. Um, but I haven't found, you know, a lot of convincing research, whether or not it's re related to estradiol signaling in the gut. I haven't yet decided that's still undecided, but, you know, using his, you know, kind of methodology that kind of keeps things in perspective. And it sounds like that nurse practitioner in your office, that's was certainly was the case for her. She sounds like she was vibrant. Yeah, she was vibrant and she was good. She had it figured out, you know, and then, and, and I learned a lot from her and it was awesome. You know, I want to kind of turn turn to another subject here. This is a more personal question, I guess. I want to find out from you when you were had, it sounds like we talked about a little bit with this, but when did you feel like your brain was out of balance or how did that touch your life? Oh, gosh. Um, so three years ago, yeah, three years ago, I came back from a trip with my husband and I thought I got food poisoning. And it turned out I had a ruptured appendix and a slew of complications. Mm -hmm. I ended up being in the hospital for 13 days and there was a good solid week. Well, I don't remember a whole lot. I was very sick. I almost died. Mm -hmm. um, and I definitely was not necessarily fully aware of what was going on. My body had, was catabolizing my muscles. So I lost 15 pounds the first week. Uh, I was very, very sick. And so I, I just recall being for the first time in my life, probably what I would describe as clinically depressed. My cousin, who's a physician, actually came down to spend time with me. And I remember saying to her, they, they wanted to give me TPN. So if anyone that's listening, they're wondering what TPN is. It's a bag of crap. It's, um, it's soy-derived protein, but it's given to patients when they're sick in the hospital and they can't eat. And I was so fixated on the fact it was soy, which I don't eat, that I, I started to cry. And I was very despondent. And my cousin said to me, if you don't let them feed you, you're going to die. And I remember thinking, wow, like I'm actually, like I'm actually that sick. Um, and so that was probably the time in my life, like my brain definitely was not firing properly. But after interest, amazingly enough, after the bag of crap, as I affectionately call it, um, within two days, I started to mentally feel clearer. But I had a solid seven days where I really, um, being someone that's very articulate and very cerebral to feel like my brain had really, well, because it was sick, my mm -hmm. body was sick. My brain was on hiatus in an effort to save my life. So that's probably the clearest time in my life where I recall 
I definitely had a week of uh, a lack of mental clarity and brain fog, given what I was dealing with sepsis. But then the following week, when I started getting some nourishment, I could feel my brain. And then I started thinking again, like what I was going to do when I got out, what were the things I was going to prioritize? What was I going to do differently having the opportunity to live? Because whether someone's been through a life-threatening situation or not, we all have points in our lives that define us. And so um, the average person when put under a lot of stress and strain doesn't rise to the occasion, but I kept saying, I have two kids at home that need me. And so it was, there was no, there was no other outcome in my mind. It was like, I was going home. I was going to show them I was okay. And that was the intention that was set. So I would say that's probably the clearest example I can think of where my brain was definitely not feeling like it was firing properly, but it was because you know, resources were being shuttled to, you know, this infection that my body was fighting. And that's such a great example. You were so strong. So, you know, congratulations on, you know, and you had a why, right? Your why was to be a mom to your kids. Mm -hmm. We have to have a purpose or a why to heal, you know, especially when we're that sick. And it's such a great example of it. It's sepsis, right? It's the brain gut. Mm -hmm. You know, your brain was shut down because your gut was messed up. Yeah. Well, and I I think, you know, know, it's, it's definitely very humbling, you know, having been an ER nurse and then, you know, dealing with critically sick patients to be told, mm-hmm. not only do you have a ruptured appendix, you've got a small bowel obstruction, you have pancolitis. I had retroperitoneal abscesses. I had a fistula. I mean, it was almost a joke that every day the surgeon came in, there was some new thing that had cropped up. What was great mm-hmm. was that after I left the hospital and I was too sick to have my appendix out, I went home. And then I went back six weeks later and I remember sitting in the surgeon's office after my surgery, crying with her and saying, you saved my life. Like, I know if I had been the average 40 something, I would have died. And she said, yes, you would have. So I I feel like on every level, my work on earth was not done and it was, it was not my time. So I think that, you know, all of us deal with challenges and we have control over how we react to them. I think that's the most important thing. Yeah. And you did it again. You did a great job. That was definitely a brain soul journey. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, I'm sure you were in prayer to, yes. you know, whatever your higher power is, you know, yes. to, okay, gosh, I gotta be, I gotta be well, you Absolutely. know, I gotta make it, I gotta make it through this. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And you're right. We all have something like that, but it is still scary, you know? Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I I will be the first person to say the universe takes and the universe gives. And so 27 days after I left the hospital, I did the talk that you mentioned. um, And I did that to show to my kids I was okay. So I, I, there are no coincidences. And so in in my estimation, when people say, you know, did you ever think that you would have so much would come out of that? And I said, heck, I was just happy to be on a stage and talking. (laughs) I was just happy to make sure my brain was still working. That was the intention that was set. I left, I set the bowl, the bar pretty low. um, And then so much came out of that. So I I sit in gratitude, but you're right. All of us have things that come up in our lives and and our reaction to them is what's, you know, sets the stage for what comes next. Yeah. And so gosh, kudos to you. And that was a beautiful way to, to, I guess just not to survive, but to thrive in a beautiful way to do that talk 27 days later. So 
Wow, that's fantastic. If you haven't seen that talk, I'm going to encourage you all to just go to go to YouTube and look up the TED Talk that, that Cynthia did here. It's very enlightening. You'll learn a lot about fasting too. And your book is coming out here soon, Intermittent Fasting Transformation. So I know we're, what are some key tips we're going to get from the book? What would you say about that? Well, it's a book designed by a woman for women. So whether you are still in peak fertility years, whether you're in perimenopause or menopause, there are strategies to help you be successful with fasting. I dive into the hormones. I talk about my story. Uh, I certainly provide lots of structure. It's a 45-day plan. So you have a whole induction phase. There are challenges. There's all sorts of the best trips, tricks, best tips that I've learned over teaching this strategy over the last five to six years. And then there are 50 recipes designed by, I believe, to be the best chef in the business, uh, Beth Lipton, who's so incredibly talented. And so um, the meals are designed to be fairly easy to put together, very nutritious and obviously delicious as well. I think it's important for people to be able to make nourishing, healthy food and not spend all day in the kitchen because I have no time for that. And I know most Mm -hmm. women don't either. But it's really the first book of its kind. It's a book dedicated to women, written by a woman um, for women. And it's not just for middle-aged women. It's for younger women as well. It teaches us how to fast for our cycle, how to honor our hormones, honor our own unique physiology, and why it's so important to kind of lean into that and not feel like we have to apologize for it. We are not many men, and we shouldn't have to fast like men. Oh my gosh, that is so beautiful. I cannot wait to, to get this. And when is the book coming out? What's the March date? 15th? Yep. And so um, if you purchase the book before March 15th, there are a slew of really cool bonuses. Um, there's a program called Clean in 14, which is a detox, a 14-day detox that's done pretty gently. There are some bonus recipes, and then there's actually a master class that will be content that was not treat was not put into the book but I feel like it's absolutely important for women to understand and know and understand about their physiology, but those things are only available prior to the launch. So you definitely want to grab them. Oh, great. So, you know what, I think we'll have, we'll leave a link here. We can post a link on this yep. so people can grab those bonuses and, and get that. Oh, that's so completely awesome. Wow. You know what, Cynthia, thank you for your wisdom today. Thank you for, you know, um, helping our audience see the importance of metabolic flexibility, you know, and balancing our hormones and important about food and eating. You know, I think we forget that part. There's so much junk out there. It just is, you know, it's not even food. I kind of think we should go back to what great, great grandma did. Yes. Yes. Right? It's food like substances is usually what I call it. You know, there's a lot of crap. <laughs> yeah. You know, stay out of the outside, stay on the outside aisles only. Don't go on the inside aisles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You yeah. know what? My, my secret plan or my secret wish is to actually Take one of those big green dumpsters, barrel it through a window of a grocery store, like a big grocery store like Smith's or Albertsons or wherever you are, and start putting all the box foods in this big green bin, get arrested and have all my clients bail me out. (laughs) 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 Just to make the point that that's not food. I know. But unfortunately, you know, you think about the processed food industry does a really good job not only marketing to us, but making their food so hyper palatable, it is very hard to resist them. I tell yes. people all the time, it just, it, it dysregulates all sorts of hormones in the brain and the stomach and our fat cells that tell us we're full or we don't want to eat these things. And so I agree with you that 
less is definitely more. And I always say, if you can't moderate, you eliminate. So if there's a food that's like kryptonite, don't even buy it. Don't bring it home. Don't buy it. Don't have it in your house. It's much easier than having tempting foods around that, you know, you end up derailing all the good work that you're doing by, you know, whether it's a chip or a cookie or whatever it is, just don't have it. It makes it much easier. You know, enjoy having a piece of fruit or maybe having a small portion of nuts uh, or a scoop of nut butter or something that will satisfy whatever it is that you're experiencing and not, you know, derailing your diet. That's great advice. That's so, so, so true. Absolutely. Have that fruit, even if it's frozen fruit, mm-hmm. you know, if I run out of some of the, the fresh fruit and I haven't gotten to the grocery store, I'm like, Hey, I'm going to have a half a cup of raspberries. Perfect. Frozen, you know, frozen fruit, right? Hey, if you could leave our audience with one tip, uh, what would it be? One brain hack, let's say. Brain hack. Oh goodness. I would probably say get 30 minutes more of sleep. I think that we don't value sleep as a society. And so I think it's seen as a, uh, almost like a badge of honor. If people get less sleep, you know, I always think about Martha Stewart saying she only needed four hours a night of sleep. And I was like, not based on brain research. You don't, even if you're one of the outliers that's born with a genetic um, predisposition to needing less sleep, you still need at least 6.25 hours. So high quality sleep, sleep 30 extra minutes. You will not miss that extra 30 minutes you spent watching TV or sitting on your iPad or reading a stupid book. I mean, I'm all for reading, but you know what I'm talking about? I do. Yeah. I would say cold, dark room, prioritize the sleep. If you need help with sleep, find out the root cause of why you're not sleeping and address Mm -hmm. it so that you can get high quality sleep. I track my sleep on my aura ring every single night. And when my deep sleep and my REM are not where they should be, I start to think about, okay, what do I need to do differently tomorrow to make sure that this doesn't reoccur? And I think that's really critically important. Oh, such a great tip. Such a great tip. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for your wisdom today, Cynthia. And again, definitely check out Cynthia's book. We'll have the link here below. Um, You want to get that book, especially if questions here about hormones, metabolic flexibility, you know, when you're in that perimenopause, perimenopause, you know, menopause kind of phase, this is going to give you a whole lot of information that you've probably been seeking for years. So again, thank you so much for your time, your wisdom today. Cynthia, it's been such a pleasure, such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I've really been looking forward to our conversation. Have a great day, everyone.